super simple. Okay, we're gonna go to MetaMask. When you open it up, it'll ask you to create a wallet and store some seed phrases. This is Alex Michelson. Alex is the co-founder of Hedgy Finance, a decentralized financial marketplace for peer-to-peer buying and selling of customized derivatives and contracts. What you can hear is Alex helping me open a crypto wallet and mint my own token. So it's meant to scare you because it is quite scary. With MetaMask, you're actually owning a on-chain wallet, which is comprised of primarily two things. One is called the public key and one is the private key. Your private key is like your house key. It unlocks everything. And your public key is like your address because there's no risk to it. And that's how people send you money. And that's when you send money, it will come from that address. Luckily for me, Alex is pretty patient because I have literally no idea what I'm doing. But after following a few steps, I've managed to use 10 of Alex's real dollars to create 10 Kanaka coins. For his trouble, I send him one Kanaka coin and assume that this is a fair trade. While some of the granular detail around creating my own token escapes me, what I do know is that Alex and I have been able to send these tokens, or digital assets, to one another instantly at a very low cost. Could this be a way for corporate treasurers to cut out the middleman and send data between businesses? A way to settle invoices, access supply chain finance and improve their working capital position without having to sign up to a complicated network of treasury management systems? This is Treasury and Turbulence with me, Kanika Seigel. And in this episode of our newest series, Next Generation Treasury, we look at how distributed leisure technology and decentralised finance can improve treasury. This podcast is supported by City. As a global bank with the largest proprietary network, City supports clients in more than 160 countries and jurisdictions. City's mission is to responsibly provide financial services that enable growth and economic progress. Stay tuned for City's in-house view with their global head of treasury and trade solutions, Shamir Kalik, with Euromoney's Duncan Care, later in the episode. Before we get back to Alex and Hedgy, let's go back a few steps and look at one of the biggest challenges for treasurers today. Paying invoices on time. Almost all invoices have 30-day terms. So that means that companies have to wait around a month before being paid for goods or services that they have already delivered. According to Broadman, a company that tracks and monitors trends around late payment practices, the number of invoices paid on time in the UK last year was 42%. And 54% of companies surveyed expect their invoices to be paid late. Longer payment terms, up to 90 days in some instances, and delayed payments are a fact of life for small businesses. But it comes at a cost. Data from the Federation of Small Businesses estimates that around 50,000 businesses fold each year due to late payments. There are a few reasons why invoices aren't paid on time. One of them is that accounting technology is expensive. Technology, depending how it's delivered, is very hard for small and medium-sized businesses to adopt. In episode one, we heard from Paul Christiansen from Provise. Expensive, complicated, you know, you need resources. So, you know, Smaller companies lower down in the supply chain may not have the capacity to afford the same state-of-the-art accounting systems that their buyers have. They may even have several buyers, all using different accounting systems, making it even more challenging for them to know which is the right system for them to use. Business is done on all kinds of different electronic networks, invoicing systems, bookkeeping systems, purchase order systems, 
spend management systems. And what we're particularly focused on is the world's largest 5,000 companies buying $25 trillion of goods and services from 20 million small and medium-sized business. It's $25 trillion a year. And in that space, every one of those large companies adopts all kinds of technology. Now, what gets worse is a whole set of businesses came along, and they're wonderful businesses. I'm not meaning to criticize them. The electronic invoicing businesses and said, hey, why don't I provide a service that enables your supplier to send you their invoice electronically? Wouldn't that be amazing? Everyone's like, yeah, that's cool. My response to that is, hang on a second. Because system one doesn't talk to system two, your solution is to put in place system three. So now we've got three systems. If suppliers can afford to implement all these myriad services, it may be that they all interact with one another seamlessly. But there is a chance that navigating these treasury systems will lead to delays in paying invoices and the reconciliation process more broadly. I mean, the underlying problem is when a customer pays you, it really helps if you know what they're paying. (laughs) This is Damien Glendinning, a retired treasurer who we also heard from in the first episode. I've done it many times when you call up a customer and say, we'd like to know why you haven't paid this invoice. And the answer is we paid it three weeks ago. (laughs) What are you doing? That's never a good discussion. (laughs) But probably the most controversial reason for withholding or delaying payments is for a company to improve its own working capital position. Over the last 20 years, that has massively extended out. Here's Paul again. And every large company in the world, pretty much, not everyone, but, but the vast majority have extended their payment terms. In my view, lazy Wall Street thinking is if a large company extends its payment terms, that's a good thing for the large company because they're holding onto their cash, they've got more working capital. That's what they think because it's easy to measure, right? So the CFO jumps on the earnings call and says, you know, we're extending our payment terms from 45 days to 60 days. All the analysts do the math, haha, they've got working capital of 50 billion, they're now going to sit on that for an extra 15 days. I can work all that out, stock price should be X, and the stock price goes up. Simple math. And that's why the last 20 years, every large company in the world pretty much has extended their payment terms because Wall Street thinks it's good and it pushes their stock price up. But guess what? The CFO and the CEO get paid on the stock price. The problem with that thinking is it's lazy math. They have said to the world, I have decided to borrow $50 billion from 100,000 SMEs that have an average cost of capital of 20%. And all the Wall Street analysts at the asset managers and everywhere else think, whoa, and they cheer on the stock price. I'm like, but this is, this is insane. The global pandemic has made things worse. We published something we call the Trade Shift Global Index of Trade Health. And that allowed us to see some of the changes during the pandemic. This is Gert Silvest, co-founder and VP of Network Products at Trade Shift. TradeShift is a platform that helps buyers and suppliers digitise all their trade transactions from invoicing, workflow and access to trade finance. In Q2 of 2020, we saw a big dip. And then in Q3, we saw things kind of spinning up. And by Q4, we saw the order volumes actually exceeding the pre-pandemic order volumes. Invoices were basically paid later and later during the pandemic. You had depleted working capital on the seller side because they got paid later and later. You had unpredictable payment cycles. So I think it painted a picture of sellers and merchants really struggling in the supply chain. Exactly what we saw during the financial crisis many years back, we saw repeated here that large buyers just stop paying and essentially the whole supply chain gets under this kind of double siege of supply chain disruptions plus financial stress. 
But over time, larger companies and their shareholders have started to recognise that these small suppliers are critical to their long-term success. And that for companies to be able to withstand financial stress, business throughout the supply chain must have access to working capital. In the UK, the policy is evolving. In 2008, the Prompt Payment Code was established to set standards for payment practices between organisations and their suppliers, and continues to do so today. And in 2019, new rules designed to make sure large government suppliers paid their bills on time to their suppliers came into force. But where some of the really interesting work is happening is in upgrading processes. Imagine a day where like the entire global economy is stitched together in in such a way that data just moves. This is Christopher Van Wert, Head of Product and Risk Strategy at Stripe. And it moves in a reconciled, obvious way. It's seamless in every single country, right? And it also moves instantaneously. There's none of this, uh, you know, fed wire cutoff times or we don't operate on weekends, right? Digits should move, again, because it's rooted in technology, instantaneously. Chris is talking about distributed ledger technology, or DLT. DLT is a decentralised peer-to-peer digital system that allows for the simultaneous access, validation and update of data across jurisdictions and has the power to eliminate the reconciliation process altogether. Decentralised finance, or DeFi for short, is an emerging technology that eliminates the need for central bank or government agency to approve financial transactions, meaning that transactions can run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If we can if we can be talking right now, right, on this conference call or, or over Zoom, then like I mean this is real time, this is amazing, right? But why can't we move numbers uh, in at, at scale in a very similar way? So I, I think if we if we can get to that space, right, and we can move not only abstractions of value as it relates to currency, but uh, letters of credit, you know, uh, titles to, to you know vehicles or, or beyond. That's a beautiful world of the future where we can really move away from the amount of toil that we spend on reconciling between bank A versus bank B system and my company system. DLT isn't just about exchanging cryptocurrency, but provides infrastructure and protocols to transfer data across the network as digital assets. Digital assets include both cryptocurrencies and tokens. While cryptocurrencies are native to a specific blockchain, tokens are created by platforms that build on top of those blockchains. Tokenization is the process where an underlying asset is converted into a digital token, a kind of digital imprint of the original asset that can run on DLT. This means that they can represent other assets, like property, art, shares in a company, an investment fund, and can be fungible or non-fungible. And in Treasury, they can represent invoices, which may help businesses access more affordable supply chain finance. That's something that Kristen at LiquidX and her product InBlock can help with. So, you know, there's tons of e-invoicing solutions out in the market. What InBlock does is it digitizes the invoice, it digitizes a purchase order, bill of lading. So all that kind of paper in the process, it stores it on the distributed ledger technology and hyperledger fabric. And then it exposes that now in data forms, and you're able to link it now and connect it to other data. The banks, a lot of times, only receive a few data elements on that invoice. Um, What's different is that we carry the history. So as long as 
a corporate's comfortable, they can present the purchase order, you know, any disputes, credit notes associated to that out to those funders in the financial system to actually fund those with accurate data so that they know there's not duplicates or fraud associated. Smart contracts, or more specifically for our example, smart invoices, execute contractual terms automatically without having to rely on manual data entry or any of the other traditional ways invoices are usually managed. When the terms of a contract are met, the token moves within the blockchain from one party to the other, meaning that invoices can always be paid on time. We came across this Icelandic company called Monerium that actually did nothing but try to get an e-money license on issuing local currencies on Ethereum. And they succeeded in doing that. Gert from TradeShift again. And so they can basically take one euro and then they can issue one Ethereum euro and you can redeem it one to one. And, and so together with Monerium, we found a few participants. So IKEA decided they wanted to participate. So we had real invoices going through. So we took one of the real invoices that they are exchanging on the network. We tokenized it, put it on Ethereum blockchain. And after some time, it executed itself. Then it basically paid in Monerium euros instead of regular euros, which could then be redeemed and one-to-one exchanged for euros. That was basically the transaction. DLT can have huge implications for treasurers. It can be used to support access to supply chain finance and help pay invoices on time. But it can also be used in the auditing process for onboarding new customers for remittances and cross-border settlement. Anything that requires the exchange of data from one place to another. And all of this can be done without the need for clunky and expensive treasury management systems, cutting cost and time for businesses. The technology is being tried and tested everywhere. And there have been tons of high-profile DLT pilot projects. Perhaps one of the best examples is the Spunta Banker DLT project, which currently serves Italy's interbank reconciliation process. And then there are some of the more niche solutions out there, like the one that Alex Michelson from Hedgie has developed. Last year, we were doing this and that in the crypto space. And one of the things that uh, I was trying to do was buy some goods from someone with cryptocurrency that was due in a month at a USD value. And I didn't have the crypto you know, on hand. I was going to generate it over the next couple of weeks. And I was like, well, this is a classic treasury problem. Like I need to find a place where I can forward this or, or buy options to hedge my position. And there wasn't a market for it at all. There's no way for me to do this. And so I think what was sort of sparked was, why isn't there an options market for this currency? So I just spent some time over a long holiday weekend diving into code and figuring out how I would make an options market if I could. I put in a lot of time building Hedgy sort of on the side after hours and on weekends for about a month. And then I was like, okay, great. I've got my code base and I think we're ready to launch. Alex's product is for the cryptocurrency super user, the digital native that already has crypto on their balance sheet, that trades in crypto and is well aware of all the opportunities and the risks involved. For some of these super users, DLT has an even more appealing application. And that's in DAOs. Um, So a DAO generally stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Um, And what that means at its core is it's a group of people collecting themselves together behind a piece of code that defines how they interact um, with each other. So it's sort of a governance model Mm -hmm. where if you think about like a board, you know, traditional shareholders, you can vote on the board and you can vote in a CEO and then the CEO does everything else. 
the idea behind a DAO is to flatten that top line to where everyone has a vote. And sometimes it's proportional to your tokens. Sometimes it's proportional to your reputation. Sometimes it's one person gets one vote. And then different DAOs are formed differently. DAOs use coordination protocols to allow individuals to work together towards a common goal by regulating interactions through rules defined in software. So, for example, there is DXDAO a decentralized autonomous network that develops, governs, and grows DeFi, where governance is permissionless, decentralized, and without central operators. There's Uniswap, an open source protocol for providing liquidity and trading tokens on Ethereum. And OneHive, a DAO that issues and distributes a digital social currency called Honey, where value is created through growing the OneHive community and contributing to the ecosystem. You've also got like, I would call them fun DAOs, where it's just a group of people who want a shared bank account and they don't feel like going to a bank. They just collect funds, you know, in a contract. I've seen people do like bachelor trip DAOs where they just collect their money, you know, whatever. It could be anything from like, you know, a group of friends just collecting money. I joined one called Lynx DAO and they are Uh, They minted NFTs that give you a vote uh, on the DAO, but they're going to use all the funds raised to buy a golf course, one that's about saving the rainforest. So they're collecting money into a DAO to like buy land in the Brazilian rainforest. Um, So it's sort of anything you can think of. This brings me back to where we started with the creation of the Kanika coin. Right now, you'll just have a token that exists in your wallet and, you know, you can do whatever you want with it. You can give it to people who, you know, listen to the <laughs> to the podcast or whatever. And you can say at a later date, we'll figure out if this has value. Or you just say, this is a fun memento, which some people do with NFTs or even tokens, where they say, you get one of these to show off that I participated. And people also like put value in that in the same way that people put value in getting points on Reddit or like some of these other blogs where they have these random tokens that like, I'm a super Redditor. DeFi is an emerging technology that can accomplish all traditional treasury objectives in a way that is faster, cheaper, and arguably better than anything that has come before. So why hasn't it taken off yet? Next time on Treasury and Turbulence, we take a look at the risks involved with DLT, emerging crypto regulation, and why treasurers are staying on the sidelines for now. How do we create a very clear and transparent marketplace for currencies the way that we've done for stocks and other instruments. With crypto, you could have different borrowing rates across different platforms that are totally transparent because whatever just happened, everything is visible on the blockchain. The last thing that you want is that you end up somewhere on the news where they say, well, uh, Port Rotterdam uh, lost the 10 million euros on their Ethereum portfolio. Then everybody asks you, well, why the hell did you end up with so much Ethereum on your balance sheet? But until then, here's Duncan with the in-house view. We are joined again by Shamir Khalik, City's Global Head of Treasury and Trade Solutions, who throughout the series has been providing his insight and thoughts on the areas we've been looking at. In this episode, Shamir and I discuss supply chain transformation, in particular, the importance and role of innovative digital technologies in enabling and accelerating this. Shamir, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Duncan. Great to be here. Look forward to our conversation. Shamir, company supply chains are going through something of a transformation. Uh, Thinking back before the pandemic and forward to the future, what changes are we seeing here and why? So the supply chain for large multinational corporates can be extremely complex. 
due to the extremely global nature of operations and the diversity of product that are being provided to the market. And what the past two years has really taught us that the supply chain has been heavily reliant on suppliers delivering on a consistent basis, which ultimately makes them more susceptible to potential supply chain shocks. Making matters even more challenging is many supply networks are now interlinked and dependent upon multiple supply chains supplying to end users. I do think that one of the positives that's going to come out of this is will be our clients thinking about how do they strengthen some of their supply chains. And you know, businesses today are really working to ensure that they have a more diverse supply chain that is frankly better able to handle disruptions uh, in the future. For banks such as City, what is their role in enabling and supporting this transformation? We've done a few things. Helping clients unlock vital working, working capital, providing suppliers with new supplier finance, working to align vendor and supplier terms while supporting suppliers with competitive financing, onboarding new suppliers extensively. We've seen a significant pickup between last year and this year. We've seen significantly higher number of new suppliers added onto our platform by our clients, really onboarding them in as effective and as efficient a manner as possible while making working capital available to them as well. So I think for us, we see it as really a great enabler for our clients to continue to trust City and really ensuring the health of our clients' supply chain. Digital technologies play a major role in increasing the visibility, efficiency, and velocity of supply chains. How important is it for companies to be investing in supply chain digital transformation? And what areas are you seeing investment in from your clients? I think it's really important to understand what we mean by digital transformation. It's it's really the ability to think about the, the client's engagement with their supplier all throughout the process of onboarding, taking putting orders out, getting delivery of those orders, making a payment out, and then keeping that virtuous cycle going as part of the working capital cycle for our clients and for the supplier as well. So I think technology is, as I mentioned earlier, the great enabler and really our investing in technology has made this transformation possible for us. Um, but it's, it's you know, quite literally, I think while we've made some great progress, I think this is a critical area for us where we continue to invest. Shamir, many companies have set ambitious ESG targets, such as reducing carbon emissions and waste and improving labor and human rights standards. How are banks such as City responding to this rising demand in the advice, support and financing that they provide? Yeah, ESG is is really a critical part of City's strategy. Our CEO, Jane Frazier, has very clearly laid out what City expects to do, not through till 2050, but also 2030. I think those aspirations are out in public. And therefore, advancing ESG agendas is really mission critical to City. And as we talk to our clients, what we find is uh, that while this agenda may be top of mind for business, I think A, corporates may not be able to do this alone. They need partners. And therefore, they need partners as they think about how do they maximize impact both within their organization as well as across, across their supply chain partners. And supply chains are now also being seen as vital in helping improve the ESG sustainability of businesses. At City, what we've tried to do is we've really expanded our global supply chain finance capabilities for clients to to really include new sustainable finance solutions that are designed to help them meet their sustainability goals, including diversity 
and inclusion initiatives as well. So we also understand that for sustainability-linked supplier financing to have a genuine impact, suppliers need to be incentivized to improve their ESG performance. This really requires us having, in partnership with our clients, reliable, transparent, and frankly, independently auditable metrics. So I would say, Duncan, we continue to work to improve uh, in our partnership with our clients, how we use ESG, not just to advance City's agenda, but also to help advance our clients' agendas across the board. So we're on a, I would say we're on a bit of a mission, we're on a journey, um, but the aspiration is we will not succeed by ourselves. I think this success is going to come through what I would call City, working very closely with our clients, working very closely with the industry to really drive the ESG agenda across the board, because we all live in this world together. Uh, I think the the objective is for all us to succeed together as part of our overall ESG aspirations around the globe. That's where we will end this episode. With thanks to Shamir for his insight and to City for its continued support of our Treasury and Turbulence podcast series. Thanks also, of course, to our series editor and presenter, Kanika Seigel, and the producer, Hunter Charlton. <laughs>